in the desire not to compromise himself. He has such a gracious manner, as we will see through this book, in dealing with pagans. You know, I meet some Christians who have great convictions, but they're cranks. And you wouldn't want to be around them, the way they express their conviction. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study of the book of Daniel, sometimes referred to as the Revelation of the Old Testament. We've so far seen that God allowed the people of Judah to be taken captive by the Babylonians because the nation had turned its back on God. The people then were deported to Babylon, and among those people were some righteous and outstanding young men, including Daniel. Last time, we looked at the authority crisis faced by Daniel and having to submit to Babylonians. And as we pick up, Pastor Brogy reads from verse 5 of chapter 1 and looks at the morality crisis faced by Daniel. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. They've got a three-year scholarship, a free ride for everything they want, but it's not the kind of free ride that they would have elected. First, they're offered a pagan diet. Now, that's not the way, of course, the king saw it. He was offering him the same food that that he ate. He thought they were doing him a big favor in allowing them to eat from the king's kitchen. Choice food. But this, of course, was a moral issue for these men. They were not interested in eating the king's meat. Why not? Because, number one, some of it would not be kosher. It would be unclean meat. It would be forbidden by the old covenant rules. And number two, it would have been dedicated to a pagan god. And they weren't interested. So there's an authority crisis. There's a morality crisis. But there's also an identity crisis. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now their Hebrew names reflect their Jewish heritage. Whenever you see a name with the word El in it, that's one of the names for God, or Ah as in Jehovah, that's also. And so Daniel, his name means God is my judge, Hananiah. It's the Hebrew word means Jehovah is gracious. Mishael, it means who is like God. Azariah means Jehovah is my help. So what does he want to do? He wants to strip them of their religious worldview, of their Jewish heritage. And we're told in verse 7, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Don't confuse that with Belshazzar who we're going to read about later in the book of Daniel. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So Asphanes, the commander of the officials, gives all four of them four pagan names after their pagan gods. To Daniel, to Daniel he gives them Belteshazzar, which is, of course, after the pagan god Baal. To uh, Shadrach, he, he names him uh, after the, the, the name Aku, another pagan, the moon god. To Meshach, after Shak, who was, of course, the, the goddess Shak. And then, of course, there's Abednego after the fire god Nego. 
Now, it's interesting, maybe because of that silly little song we learn as kids, most of us know them by their pagan names rather than by the names that their parents gave them that reflected their rich, godly heritage. But notice the phrase here at the beginning of verse 6. It says, now among them. He may have given them pagan names, but they do not forget their faith. Now among them. Why does he point out just four? Remember, he went to the royal family. He took use, but there are just four that distinguish themselves. Why are the others not mentioned except in just kind of a wholesale way? Did they cave in under the pressure? Did they compromise? Did they they give in to the pagan society in which they were? You see, you have to make up your mind. You have to make a decision. And Daniel and his friends made his decision. I became a believer at 18 as a freshman at Boston College. And I remember coming in some Friday nights. And as far as I know, initially I was the only born-again believer on that hallway of 120 men. And I'd come in with a Bible under my arm, and it was sheer hell and revelry. Shoulder-to-shoulder drunkenness immorality widespread in that dorm. And sometimes it was very lonely. And sometimes I would hear of it from my friends when I came in with that Bible under my arm. Not in a pious way, just coming back from a Bible study. But you have to decide whom you're going to serve. So these are the captives who were taken. This is the crises that they faced. Third, I want you to see the critical decisions that they made. Life really is a series of decisions, and many of the major decisions in life we make when we are young. For years and years in campus ministry, I would give a talk, and I would say three major decisions in life, master, mate, and mission. And most people make those decisions early on in life. Most people receive Christ before the age of 30. Most get married before the age of 30. Most set a career direction before the age of 30. Well, here's Daniel and his friends, and they are at a crisis point in their life. And so what are they going to do? And what they do do will determine for a long time to come what they will be. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, they made a decision from the heart. They made a decision from the heart. Notice how verse 8 begins with a very strong contrastive conjunction. But, but Daniel made up his mind. Now, if you have the New American Standard with the marginal notes, if you will go out into the margin, it will actually give you the literal reading of the Hebrew text. Go out into the margin and look at what it says. It says, but Daniel set upon his heart. Now, that may seem a little awkward, a little wooden in English, but in many respects, it's better. Daniel set upon his heart. In other words, Daniel made a decision in his own heart. It was a decision between him and God. And really, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. I tell that to people who come in all the time. They're in some crisis in their family, in their marriage. Now, I always remind them, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. It is ultimately a heart issue. And I will tell so many, if you will just get on your face, and ask God to forgive you and change you, He will begin to do it. Watch over your heart with all diligence, Proverbs says, because out of it flow the springs of life. 
What is your most important stewardship? Is it your time? Is it your money? Is it your talent? It is your heart. And some of us will leave here today having immersed our thinking in the Word of God and tomorrow we'll fill our minds with utter garbage. And we wonder why we are so ineffective for God. And so they make a heart decision. Daniel made up his mind, his heart, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine in which he drank. Again, remember, these Babylonians would take their meat, not their vegetables, but their meat only, as their own history records, and they would dedicate it to their pagan gods. And they would think when they would then eat this meat, it would bring blessing mentally, physically, socially, spiritually, and in other ways. What about their drink? Was that dedicated? No. Why would he not drink it? Because it was strong drink. And God forbids two things clearly in Scripture. Number one, drunkenness. The other is the use of strong drink with the exception in Proverbs that you can give it to a dying, despairing man like you would give morphine to someone as an act of mercy. Is he talking about whiskey and rum? No, no, no. Those are written. Those are invented 600 years after the Bible is completed. Go online to searchthescriptures.org. Go to the icon called blogs. I've got an article from a brother who went to Princeton Seminary when it was conservative, and he wrote an excellent article that appeared in Christianity Today in the 1970s called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. Read it. That's a sermon in itself. But I want to say parenthetically, I don't know Christians that God is using in might and in power who use alcohol You say, well, I can handle my liquor, Pastor. I can have a glass of beer and it not give me a buzz. That wasn't true at first. First time you had a glass of beer, a glass of wine, you got a little high off of it. What's your goal? To see how close you can get to drunkenness? Or how far away you can be from it? Not to mention that it has the appearance of evil in our day. It can cause people to stumble and certainly does not glorify God. Here was Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel as we used to sing. Be a Daniel. Be a person set apart. Alcohol has come back into fashion in our day. And now you're cool. And all of the preachers of the last hundred years were stupid and ignorant and fundamentalist and ignorant and legalistic. No, they were well studied. Unlike this generation. I went through four year, a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program. And believe me, I've thought through this issue and I haven't come to it in a sloppy fashion. He said, I'm not going to eat your unclean meats or your idle, dedicated food, much less your strong drink. Now, there was pressure on this man. No doubt there was cultural pressure. They would have laughed at him. They would have mocked at him as we're going to see. There was peer pressure. I mean, can you imagine it? What happened to the rest of Daniel's friends? Why are they not distinguished? Maybe they said, look, Daniel, we're hundreds of miles away from home. Nobody's going to know. And really, the real test of who you are is when no one else is there to watch you. No one but God. Come on, Daniel, it's just a little thing. 
it really doesn't matter. You don't have to be legalistic over this. After all, if we drink some of their drink and eat some of their meat, we can relate to them and maybe we can win them to the God of Israel. Not on his life. He was going to be different. Not to mention there was fear pressure. I mean, look at verse 10. You disobey the king of Babylon, it can cost you your life. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than they used to your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. And he knew that to be true. This king had a way of reducing the head count, and he didn't want his reduced. It was serious. You read in the other prophets about Nebuchadnezzar, he's not a nice guy. But it reminds me that Daniel was willing to take a stance for Christ, just like many of the Christians who in recent months have lost their heads, just like my Soviet brothers who would not compromise, and if it meant going to the gulag and losing everything and getting the worst jobs, then that's what they were going to do. They were going to follow the Word of God. When everybody else said yes, Daniel said no. When everybody else was eating the king's meat, Daniel said not on your life. When everyone was drinking the king's drink, Daniel said, I will not do it. He was not going to bend. And so they made a decision from the heart. Notice, too, they made a decision in humility. In humility, we read here at the end of verse 8, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He has a very gracious attitude. He's not saying, I'm not going to eat any of your pagan food. No, in humility, he asked for permission not to eat. He'd take the pagan education, much like Moses took the one he got down in Egypt. He put up with that. He would put up with the pagan name, but not eating the pagan food or the pagan drink. To share in that feast was to do something that was morally wrong, and it didn't matter to him. He had strong convictions. He was not going to compromise himself. But in the desire not to compromise himself, he has such a gracious manner, as we will see through this book, in dealing with pagans. You know, I meet some Christians who have great convictions, but they're cranks, and you wouldn't want to be around them, the way they express their convictions. Verse 10 indicates that he appeals to the commander of the officials. Nonetheless, verse 9 indicates, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander is only concerned about his head. But God grants, it's the same word we just read earlier, gives. Same Hebrew word. I don't know why they use two different English words. He gives Daniel favor and compassion. That's God's sovereignty. Instead of being insubordinate, God worked in the heart of this man. And he gives favor and compassion. Again, read verse 10. And the commander of the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid. The end of verse 10, you will make me forfeit my head to the king. So when his request is denied, because this is a man of conviction and perseverance, he then goes to his boss, the overseer. Look at verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were drinking, they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. 10 days later, these youths are brought in. They're distinctly different. Their countenance looks better. They've got a little more body weight than the rest of them. And life is a lot like that. You think about it. You see one person who lives for Jesus Christ, who walks with the Lord, and there's a youthfulness, there's a spring in their step. You see another person who year after year after year, decade after decade, they live in rebellion and sin, and it's written all over their body. These guys were different. Now, there's a third dimension. Not only do they make a decision from the heart, not only do they make a decision that is expressed in humility, they made a decision that was honored. Just like when God said to Eli, them that honor me, I will honor. So now Daniel makes a decision that is honored. Let's keep reading now, beginning in verse 17. As for these youths, God gave. There's the third time. Verse 2, I've got it circled the word gave. Verse 9, granted, but it's the same Hebrew word gave. Verse 17, gave. Again, God's sovereignty in these youth's lives. And it's going to run all the way through the book, whether it's his sovereignty over individuals, his sovereignty over Israel, or his sovereignty over the Gentile nations. As for these youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers. We're all in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year. Important chronological note, Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king is a king after the Babylonians are overthrown and the Medo-Persia empire comes in. And he comes to the throne and he steps on the throne and he reads a book that's 150 years old. It's called the prophet Isaiah. And he sees his name written in a book ever before he was born. And he lets the people go. And so this is how we know how old Daniel is by the time he comes into the lion's den. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these young men, he sees Daniel, and he knows there's something distinctly different about them. That there is something on their life that distinguishes them from all the other from the royal household. He can see the results, but he does not understand the cause. He sees the product, but he does not see the process behind that product. He's smart enough to know that they are distinctively different, but he does not know why. And that's the story of our generation. We're looking for people of leadership skill, but we do not know how to produce it. And there's a leadership crisis in our nation from the White House to the church house. 
And Americans are going after people who are not people of character. And we think like Nebuchadnezzar. We think that the reason people are deficient is because they lack education. So we throw education at them. And there are people in our nation, if they are elected to office and they have their way, they want to make education mandatory from K3 upwards. And they want to bring our children into institutions where God is not even welcomed. It's okay to bring a condom to school, but you bring your Bible to school and look out. And like Nebuchadnezzar, the very person who is responsible for developing these character traits, we have stiff-armed him and we said we don't want him. Now, the fascinating thing about Daniel and his friends is that these men are men of character and they are able to stand the test. In chapter 1, the test concerns the believer's walk. In chapter 3, the test concerns the believer's worship. And in chapter 6, the test concerns the believer's witness. It doesn't matter whether it is a food or a fiery furnace or a furry lion's den, they are able to stand strong no matter what. Now think your way through this. You read this chapter carefully and you discover that Daniel and his friends are offered four things. First, they are offered the best education. From archaeology, we know it was the finest education in the world at that time. Secondly, they were offered positions of influence. Third, they were given new names so that they would feel right at home. And finally, they were invited to dine at the king's table. But Daniel and his friends refused the fourth offer. Now, unfortunately, when we read the first chapter, our tendency is simply to focus on what Daniel and his friends did not do rather than what Daniel and his friends did do. You see, Daniel could have said, I'm not interested in your education. It's pagan. It's devoid of God. Hang it on your beak. He could have said, as for your job, I'm not interested. God has given me revelation. I know how the whole thing ends, and you are on the losing side. Your empire is going to end up in dust. I don't want your lousy job. As for your name, big deal. I'm not interested in being named after some pagan, hedonistic, false god. Why is it that the one thing he refuses is the food and drink? Because that was the one issue that would force him to disobey God. For him, he knew what the Word of God said, and that settled it for him. Let God be found true and every man be found a liar. If I could clone a generation of Daniels, that's what I would want to clone. Men and women, youth, who are set apart, who are willing to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what. Life, it's a series of decisions. We will make hundreds of them in this new week. And what we are today are the result of the decisions that we've made in the past, that we'll make today, and that we will make tomorrow. You see, Daniel makes a basic decision. And had he not made this decision in this fourth realm right, we never would have had this book we call the prophet Daniel. Even to the casual reader, that becomes so obvious. Now, I happen to believe that God wants to use this church 
not just in our community, but in our nation and in our world. And I believe He can use this church to make a difference for Jesus Christ, not because of the programs we have, not because of our crafty planning, but because we are willing to be distinctively different like soul and light. It's not our likeness to the world that gives us influence. It's our distinctiveness from the world to be like Christ that will allow us to have that kind of an impact. Listen, first you make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. Dare to be a Daniel. Now, our Holy Father, we know that's not even possible without a birth from above. And I pray today for someone who is here who has never received Jesus Christ as Lord. They're alive physically, but Your Word says they are dead spiritually. And that they must be born again as Jesus told that Pharisee Nicodemus to enter the kingdom of God. My friend, if that's you, if you're here and you've never had a birth from above, that's your greatest need. Because without it, you will not go to heaven and you will spend an eternity without the living God. And you will go through and you will waste decade after decade without any real meaning to life. For you to have this birth, you must admit that you're helpless. That you cannot be your own Savior. But that the Messiah of Israel has come Salvation is from the Jews, the Bible says. And on a cross, just as Isaiah the prophet said, He was pierced through for our iniquity, but His body did not undergo decay. The One who became your substitute was raised from the dead, proving His sinlessness and His ability to die for you. But you must come in faith. You must take God at His word that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is not something you earn. It is a gift you receive. Would you say in simple faith today, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, what a privilege it is to represent You in our generation. Generation that has lost its way. People who are desperately looking for reality and education and government relationships and entertainment and family, but they are looking in all the wrong places because they need to be looking to You. You told us, watch over our hearts with all diligence. May we guard our hearts, the most precious stewardship You've given us. And like Daniel, May we make decisions from the heart that will make us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's introduction to our study in the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN01 entitled, Daniel, A Man of Competence. Tomorrow we move into Chapter 2 and look at a king's nightmare. Join us then as we Search the Scriptures.